The passage we're in this morning is Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And I don't know if any of you guys have been watching the, uh, the news lately, but it's a lot about the election now, isn't it? It's looming. It's coming. And I was thinking about the election, and, and one thing about our government is it's a vying for power, isn't it? Who's going to be in control of the country? And you see the two sides taking up who's going to have the control over the direction and the vision for our nation. And as I started to think about that, I began to think about that's really what the Christian life is. It is a battle for control. When you're born again, the control should be the Lord's. But oftentimes the biggest battle is within our own hearts, whether or not we'll allow the Lord Jesus Christ to have reign over our hearts. Will he have the control in our life? Today's message in Mark chapter 4, we're going to see that the disciples are going to learn a valuable lesson in regards to the power of Christ. As a little background leading up to this chapter, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is confronted by some religious leaders that basically say, hey, you know, that power that you used to cast out those demons, that power that you used to heal people, that's not really from God. That's from Beelzebub, the devil. Then Jesus rebukes them. And he says, because you said that, he says, you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. John 1.11 says this, that Jesus came to his own. And that those that were his own did not receive him. From that time on, Jesus began to preach in parables. So that the people didn't understand. And then what he'd do in private, he'd go to his disciples and he'd share these parables with them. One thing we're going to see though is that the disciples still don't get it. They don't understand that Jesus is the living incarnate God. He is God on earth. John 1.14, he became flesh and dwelt among us. They don't understand yet that their very breath is in his hands. I want you to ask yourself this question as we go through this message. What kind of power does Jesus have? What kind of power does Jesus have? Does Jesus powerfully reign in your life? Let's read the text. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was in the boat. And the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him, and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the sea, and he said, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What kind of power does Jesus have? That's the question. And the first thing we'll see is that Jesus has the power to direct you. Jesus has the power for those who trust them. He has the power to direct your life. 
Look at verses 35 and 36. It says, and on that day when evening had come, he said, hey, let's go over to the other side. Here's the picture. Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee, and there's a large crowd that had gathered. This had been a crazy day. It started out in, in Mark chapter 3 with that confrontation with those religious leaders where they were saying, ah, you're not really from God. This is the work of the devil. And then a little later, he's in his house, uh, the house of Simon Peter, and he's preaching. And the house is packed, and his mother and brothers come, and they try to steal him away because they think he's gone nuts. And they try to take him back to Nazareth. Then he leaves there because since Capernaum's right by the Sea of Galilee, he walks down to the water and there's a huge crowd gathered there. It's so big that Jesus has to get in a boat and he preaches from a boat in the hot sun these parables. He's exhausted. Physically, as a man, Jesus is tired. And so he tells the disciples, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. He crawls in the boat He goes to the back of the stern, boom, he's out like a light. That's the picture we have here. One thing we need to understand about Christ, Jesus being God, when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. When he says, let's go over to the other side of the lake, you can bank on it. They are going to make it to the other side of the lake. Whether or not it's going to be bumpy is a whole other story. What happens here? The disciples don't understand yet that this truly is the living incarnate God within our midst. Teach these disciples a valuable lesson. But this valuable lesson is the same lesson that we have to learn. What kind of power does Jesus have in your life? One thing with Jesus being God, when it says in Genesis 1-3, let there be light and there was light, that was Jesus saying that. In Mark chapter 2, when the paralytic comes up to him and he says, My son, your sins are forgiven. Rise, take up your pallet and walk. And he got up. His sins were forgiven. He got up and he took that pallet and walked. And when Jesus says right here, Hey, we're going to the other side. They can bank on it. They're going to the other side of that lake. This is a real true life story, but it's through the eyes of Peter. Mark was basically a scribe for Simon Peter. and He's writing out what Peter experienced there on the water. So you have this picture. It's calm, glassy. The water is smooth as glass. And they start out just as evening is falling. They hoist the sails. They take off and everything is just fine. They get to about the middle of the lake. It's about five miles across and boom, suddenly a storm hits. Well, Jesus is in the back of the boat. But the disciples, they just start freaking out. This is a picture for us guys the way our lives it, isn't it? Oftentimes our lives, things are going good. And then all of a sudden, boom, a storm hits, a crisis hits, a disease hits, a financial crisis hits, a relationship issue hits. And will we trust in the power of Christ for our life? How does Christ direct us today? That's the question right here. Jesus has the power to direct us. But how does he do it today? Well, the first way I think that he does it, he does it in the everyday events of life. That's what we're seeing right here. This is just a regular event. These disciples, they lived on the water. Many of them were fishermen. They knew this lake well. So this is a regular event. And this is often how God will work. He'll work in the everyday events of your life. 
But there's another way that God works, and this is through primarily the Word of God. God directs us primarily through His Word. 99.9% of the time, if you want direction, you know where you go? To the Word of God. Now, God has very clear directives in the words, right? We call them the black and whites. I've never had somebody come up to me and say, hey, Pastor Rob, is it okay for me to steal or to commit adultery or to covet? No, man, those are all black and whites. They're the easy ones, right? The ones that we have questions on is really kind of our Christian freedom. What are the things that I have freedom in that really it's okay for me to do? We call them the gray areas, right? I remember when Clinton and I were serving together, Pastor Bill Foote, who was the pastor in England at that time, he preached a sermon called The Gray Areas. And as I was doing this message, I was thinking, man, that is that sermon. And so I'm going to share with you what he shared with me. I'm going to give it back to you. The Gray Areas. Ask yourselves these questions. What are the freedoms? What are the things that we can do? Seven principles that govern our Christian freedom. The first one is, if God is directing us and we want to be directed in the Word of God and we're not quite clear, the first one is, will it benefit me spiritually? Will this thing I want to do, will this thing I'm doing with this person, will it benefit me spiritually? 1 Corinthians 10.23 says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Is this thing profitable for you spiritually? Will it build up godly character? Will this thing you want to participate in or do, will it benefit your walk? Edify means to build up. Will it build you up spiritually? So when we're going to do something, we need to ask ourselves, hey, is this going to be a benefit to me spiritually? That's the first thing. The second thing is, will it bring me into bondage? Will it somehow put me into some kind of bondage? 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul, in the second part of this verse, says, I will not be brought under the power of anything that's any substance or any person. Is this thing you're considering, is this thing you're doing somehow have a hold on your life? If it does, let it go. Cut it off. Stop it. Will it benefit me spiritually? Will it bring me into bondage? The third thing, will it defile God's temple? Will it defile my body? Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Is this thing that you're doing, are you watching something on the internet? Are you participating in something you shouldn't be? If you are, stop it. Fourth thing, will it cause anyone to stumble? Is the thing that you're doing causing someone else to stumble in their walk? 1 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9 says, Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse for it when we do not eat, nor the better for it if we do eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block for the weak. As Romans 13.10 puts it, it says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Is this event you want to attend? Is this person you're hanging out with? Are you participating in something that's causing them to stumble? And this could be your spouse, your children, your neighbor, somebody here in church. You need to question, is this an issue for somebody else? I may have the freedom as a Christian to do it, but is it causing them to stumble? Then don't do it. Number five, will it further the cause of evangelism? Is this a benefit for the kingdom? 
First Corinthians 10, 32 and 33 says, Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. And this is really dealing more with your behavior is what you're doing causing an offense to those around you. And they're saying, wow, this guy's living a double standard life. He does this at church, but he does this out of church. It ruins your witness. It ruins the evangelistic idea of being faithful and people saying, wow, there's a disconnect here in this guy's life and what I'm seeing and what he's preaching. Will it benefit me spiritually? Does it bring me under bondage? Does it defile my body? Does it cause someone to stumble? Will it further the cause of evangelism? Number six, will it violate my conscience? Will this thing that I want to do violate my conscience? Romans fourteen twenty three says, He who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he is eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, 1 Corinthians ten twenty five and 29 contain three references abstaining from certain practices for conscience sake. Now, there's a couple ways we can look at the conscience. Sometimes the conscience convicts you not to do something, right? Sometimes it says, hey, don't do that. If it does that, don't do it. But sometimes the conscience convicts you to do something. Surrender your life to Christ. The conscience is saying, come to me, come to me. And you're saying, no, I can't do that. I just spoke to somebody this week. She understood completely what the gospel means, a full surrender to Christ, trusting in his power alone. But yet she was unwilling to take that step of faith, unwilling to surrender, even though her conscience was saying, do it, do it, do it. Sometimes your conscience is going to say, don't do it. And sometimes your conscience is going to say, do it. Listen to your conscience, because when you don't, the Bible says that you will sear it like a hot iron. And it'll come to one point where you won't even be able to hear the word of the Lord anymore. Number six, will it violate my conscience? And the last one, will it bring glory to God? Will it bring glory to God? This is the overarching one. First Corinthians 1031 says, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Basically, this is a summary of them all. Is this thing I want to do going to glorify the Lord or not? If it's going to bring shame to his name, shame to your family, shame to his reputation, don't do it. Principles to live by. Sometimes we have the black and whites in Scripture. Sometimes we need these principles. Seven things. Will it benefit me spiritually? Will it bring me into bondage? Will it defile my body? Does it cause anyone to stumble? Does it further the cause of, a, of evangelism? Does it violate my conscience? And will it bring glory to God? Seven principles that will help us as we walk listening to the Word of God. But God also works in the everyday ways of life, doesn't He? Just like here with the disciples. The disciples here, they think, hey, we're just going to go to the other side of the lake. They take off. It's nice and glassy water. Things are good. But they're going to find out pretty quick that things can change, that things get real bumpy. And I was thinking about someone who, who would I want to think about and, and talk to you guys about it, that I've seen God work in their life through the everyday ways of life. It's my buddy Clint. He has no idea. I'm going to share this. <laughs> I have watched Clint walk with the Lord now for over 15 years. And when I met him, he had just arrived in England because God had called him to go there and to help out with basically raising up the, a youth department for this brand new little church plant we were doing called Grace Fellowship. 
But Clint got over there by, by getting a job. He was hired by a company to sell auto parts. And that company was located in London. And we were located two hours away in Ashford. So Clint would have to travel two hours on the weekend to come down and minister to the kids. And I'll never forget, he's only there about a month and his boss let him go. Now, Clint's on a working visa in England. He's not on a missionary visa, so he can't stay there no more. So he calls me kind of in a panic, like, dude, I don't know what God's doing. I'm out of a job. And, of course, we, we, only had, we had a van there. And so he calls me because I can pick up all his stuff. And so I, I drive two hours to London, pick up all his stuff. I mean, it was packed. And so we're kind of like driving like this all the way back. And we just started talking, and, and Clint was really upset. In his mind, God had called him there, and he had it all worked out. God called me here to do this job, and I'd be able to minister on the weekends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that wasn't God's plan. And so I began to talk to him. I said, buddy, I said, do you realize that that God doesn't want you just to work a job and keep you away from the kids? I think he wants you in full-time ministry, man. What do you think? I said, if you could do anything, what would it do? And for the next two hours, he laid out this vision God had given him about having having like a youth... um, I don't know what you call it, a youth retreat, a time for kids to come into a, the, uh, we, we found this little, uh, help me out here, community center. There you go. Thank you. He said, I want to have a community center where kids could come after school and they could play ping pong or pool. And we'd be able just to minister to them just in the things that they do. And then we teach them the gospel and share with them. And so we started praying that week. And after we got done praying on a Friday, I think it was, we went for a little drive heading towards town and we were passing the local community center. And on the front of the community center, it said, the youth community group is closed. Like, what? And we pulled in and there was a caretaker there and we just started talking to the guy. And we said, you know, we're a local church and we were thinking of kind of doing this like youth outreach, like in the community. And we were wondering if this building would be available. He says, yeah, he says, we used to have that kind of thing here, but the people were kind of ripping off the kids. And he says, as a matter of fact, we have all the equipment. And he opens up these doors and there were ping pong tables and pool tables. And within the first week that Clint, he thought it was all over. God opened a huge door. And the first beginning ministry of that church is reaching out to the young ones there in Ashford. And hundreds receive the Lord there. In the everyday ways of life, God moves. Sometimes we think, wow, it's all over. It gets bumpy. It gets rough. And you think right now, maybe you're in a tough spot. And maybe God has forgotten you. He has not. God will work. He will direct you. Trust Him. That's the first point. God has the power. Jesus has the power to direct you. Second point. Jesus has the power to protect you. Jesus is powerful enough to preserve your life. Verses 37 and 38. And there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern asleep on a cushion. Okay, the picture is it's calm. Things are good. We're just heading over to the other side. And suddenly, Matthew says, a fierce gale, huge storm all of a sudden hits. You've got to understand the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 628 feet below sea level. It's very low. It's like in a basin. Surrounding the Sea of Galilee, you have all these mountains. And the mountains have these ravines. So you have the cold air that comes shooting down these ravines, kind of like funnels. You have the hard air from the Sea of Galilee. It meets it. And sometimes on the Sea of Galilee, boom, you can have a huge, fierce storm. And that's what happens here. Things are calm, and all of a sudden it's not calm. 
Jesus is sound asleep and the disciples start freaking out. Now, these guys are fishermen. They're used to handling storms. They've been on the Sea of Galilee all their life. This must have been a major one. This is like a hurricane hit. As a matter of fact, Matthew, in his version, he says, he uses the, the word seismos. It's like an earthquake hit. This boat is being rocked around. It says that w- waves are crashing over the boat. It's starting to fill with water. The disciples are freaking out. And Jesus is over here, sound asleep. And they're trying to figure out, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Now, I've experienced something like that. When, when I was a teenager, my, my parents used to go water skiing a lot to the lake, in, in Lake Havasu. I don't know if you guys have ever been there. Pretty big lake. And there was this one day, it was glassy still. I mean, I'm water skiing behind the boat, and you could see these black clouds coming. And so my stepdad stopped the boat and he said, get in. There's something's going on here. I mean, I, by the time I got on the boat, there was already high winds. And literally, it went from glassy calm to about four-foot waves, white caps, the whole deal. And so we kind of raced to try to find a cove, and we finally pulled into this cove. We tied off the boat on a rope. And I'm not kidding you, the winds felt like they were 100 miles an hour. It was literally, you could hear that high-pitched scream of the wind, and there was rain, and there was hail, and it was crazy. Well, they actually had a tornado that hit the lake and had some people killed on that lake. I experienced that, and that's kind of like what happened here. One moment it's calm, but the next moment, it is absolutely going nuts. And these disciples don't know if they're going to make it. Literally, I think probably their sails are torn in two. Life is often like that, isn't it? We think things are good. I got a good job. My family's healthy. I'm doing good. Wife's doing good. And then all of a sudden, crisis hits. And this is often what God allows to happen in your life. And I'm looking at many faces here. I've had prayers with many of you as you've gone through your struggles or you're in your struggles right now. Sometimes we don't know exactly what God is doing. But just like the disciples here, he's going to use this in their life to test their faith. He's going to use this difficult event in their life as a test for them to see how they respond. Will they respond in faith? Look at verse 38. It says that Jesus, though, was asleep on a cushion. I think Jesus just is at peace. He understands that God is absolutely sovereign and that nothing happens outside of his commands. Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Life is oftentimes like that. It starts out easy, but then it starts to get rocky. Sometimes we get wet. Sometimes we don't know exactly what God is doing. And I can tell you, it's at that time he's calling us to trust him because he can deliver us. Bill Foote, who we, who we served with in England, he went on a missions trip to China. And they were just supposed to smuggle in Bibles. But when they got there at the border, the next day they were going to go across the border with the Bibles. And he shared with me that they asked all the people that were there to smuggle in the Jesus film. There was a law in China that if you were to smuggle in any kind of media, it was instant jail time. The problem is about 20 years ago. The problem was Bill and Carrie had just adopted a little son, Taylor. And suddenly Bill was in a dilemma. Do I risk this? I've got a little son. I've got a wife now with a child. What do I do in this situation? He said he wrestled with it all night. And in the morning, he pulled out the videos And he put them on the counter and he left his room and he headed down to the van to take across the board. He wasn't going to risk it. Not worth it. He said he got about 10 feet from the van and all of a sudden he heard the Lord's still small voice in his heart. He said, is this your stopping point? 
Is this as far as you'll go for me? Is it your family? Do you not trust me that I have the power to protect you? He stopped, ran back, got the videos, put them in the bag, and the Lord protected them all the way through, and they delivered all the Bibles, all the videos. Do you guys have a stopping point? Do you have an area in your life that you will not risk it for the Lord? That is the question that he's posing here to the disciples. They don't understand yet that God is using this in their lives so that they will understand with all their heart they can trust him, that he he is a powerful and protecting God. He is a God who protects. As a matter of fact, when God calls you to something in obedience, he will hold you and protect you through it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that we have a God that has the power to direct you? Do you believe that we have a God that has the power to protect you? Jesus has the power to direct. Jesus has the power to protect. And the third thing, Jesus has the power to deliver you. Look at verses 38b and 39. Jesus has the power to deliver us in our time of need. It says, they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing and being aroused? He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it was perfectly calm. So they awake Jesus. They're in a panic. And they say, Jesus, wake up. The sails are in rags. The boat is half full with water. They're freaking out. And they say to him these words, Jesus, don't you care? That we're perishing? Don't you care that we're about ready to drown is really what it means. Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die here? I had somebody a few weeks ago call me and ask me if I could come over and talk to them. And when I wa- walked in and sat down, this gentleman said to me, he said, is God punishing me? Doesn't he care what I'm going through? Almost these exact words. Doesn't he know what I'm going through? Jesus does know. The thing we have to realize is often God allows these things in our life for a purpose. This is what the disciples are really saying. Hey, Jesus, if you really loved us, you wouldn't let us go through this. Hey, Jesus, if you really loved us, you wouldn't allow us to be ready to sink here. Hey, Jesus, if you loved us, you wouldn't allow us to endure such deadly peril. Can I tell you? Yes, sometimes God will. Why? that you'll grow in your faith. So that you'll learn to trust Him more than you ever have. This is often how we approach God, isn't it? Things are good. Me and Jesus, we're fine. And then something very difficult happens and we begin to question God. God, do you really love me? If you really loved me, you wouldn't let me suffer like this. You wouldn't make me face this thing that I have no answers for. And the disciples, these guys are fishermen, right? They've always had the answer. They always know what to do on the water. They have no answers for this one. And so they're literally questioning Jesus now. And they're saying, don't you care that we're perishing? These guys were stripped of everything they had to depend upon. Now it's a test of their faith. 1 Peter 3, 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found in the praise and the glory and the honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
When I talk to mature believers in Christ, they tell me that this is always the time when they grow. It's always in the time of suffering. It's always in the time of trials. These are the moments that God speaks most clearly to our hearts because we don't have it all nailed down. And we begin to become dependent on Him. And we cry out to Him to deliver us. And this is the test right now that Jesus is allowing these guys to go through. So they wake up Jesus and they say, don't you care? And two amazing things happen. First of all, it's Jesus' words. It says that he rebukes the wind. How does he do that? Does he roll up his sleeves? Does he get a fist out and say, wind? No, he just says, hey, hush, be still. A quiet voice to the wind. Now, that's amazing enough. But the second thing is the wind actually responds. It responds like a compliant child. It actually just stops. And the sea becomes absolutely still and calm. You know, in ancient cultures, the power of the ocean was viewed as unstoppable destruction. And the only person that had power over the ocean was God. And Jesus right here, with three simple words, stops the storm. There is a valuable, valuable lesson here. Jesus does not have to conjure up power. Jesus does not have to call on a higher authority for power. Jesus is power. The sea stopped because anything and everything is held in the hand of our Lord. Jesus is power himself. Hebrews 1.3 says, And Jesus is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has the power to deliver you? Do you believe that Jesus has the power to protect you? Do you believe that Jesus has the power to direct you? I mean, this is a mighty claim here. What Jesus demonstrates is that he is the all-living, mighty, incarnate God. And how you approach this truth matters. Some approach it this way. The world is a result of a monumental storm. They call it the Big Bang. And it's swirling around, and it's just random, and at some point it's going to stop, and you're going to be turned to dust, and nothing is going to be left. That's one way to view the world. However, if Jesus is who he's claiming to be here by his actions, Jesus is the Lord of the storm. Jesus is power. He is the one that controls our very breath and life. And when we depend and trust in him, we have eternal life, life everlasting. You know, I read a a story about a moving tribute for the King James Bible. That was the 400-year anniversary of the King James Bible was in 2011. And a newspaper in Nebraska wrote about something that happened in World War II in 1940. The German army was plowing through France, and despite the help of more than 300,000 British, America wasn't involved in the war yet, the Allied forces were pushed all the way to Dunkirk, a town in northern France. And the English people rallied. And they got hundreds and hundreds of boats to leave the English shores to come and try to rescue these troops. But before the evacuation could happen, a British officer, he sent out the following message, only three words. 
And it read, but if not, but if not. It's found in Scripture. It's found in Daniel 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Where they're facing Nebuchadnezzar and he says, you need to bow down to this statue. And they said, we will not bow down. Let me read it for you. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. They said to Nebuchadnezzar, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, firing furnace. And he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve thy gods. We will not worship the golden image that thou hast set up. But it not was understood by the troops, and they understood that it meant that we will stand their ground no matter what, whether they get picked up and saved or not. But God used that to rally the troops, and he did deliver them. The disciples here don't look at it that way. They are freaking out. They don't understand that Jesus can deliver them. They don't think he has the power to do it. And some of you might be objecting right here and say, you know what? I haven't seen God deliver me. I haven't seen God come through in my ordeal. This is where we need to just wait upon the Lord. He might be trying to show you something about your own heart. He might be having you wait to see, do you really trust him? Or you might want you to learn what Paul learned. For Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness, and most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Does Jesus have the power in your life to direct you, have the power in your life to protect you? Do you believe that he has the power to deliver you? And the last one, Jesus has the power to sustain you. Jesus has saving power that will hold us till the end. Look at verses 40 and 41. And he said to them, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? At this point, I think the disciples had lost all hope. They didn't think there was any hope. And they basically say to Jesus, don't you care if we're going to drown? And it says here that the disciples were very afraid. Jesus says to them, why are you so timid? Jesus asked them basically, hey guys, the word timid is the word afraid. Why are you guys afraid? Don't you understand? I'm the same guy that that cast out demons the other day and I healed these people the other day. And don't you think that I now could take care of you here? Why are you so afraid? And that's the question that God often asks us, isn't it? When this thing happens in our life, when this event takes place, when suddenly we're facing cancer or the loss of a loved one or a job that's no longer there, that's exactly what God asks us. Why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? But the disciples are saying, Lord, if you loved us, you wouldn't make us go through this. Guys, yes, he will. This is the point. The Lord will do whatever it takes so that you have the faith to stand all the way to the end. God allows things in our lives to build up and strengthen our faith. Jesus questioned them and he poses, why are you so afraid? And sometimes what happens with the storms in our life is they demonstrate a lack of faith, don't they? They demonstrate that really what we're we're depending upon is the things around us and ourselves and not God. And Jesus asked them, how is it 
that you have no faith. And there's a really important principle I want you to understand about faith. It's not a matter of your faith's strength. It's a matter of the object of your faith. It's not a matter of how strong your faith is, but it's a matter of what your faith is in. And here's how I like to picture it. Let's suppose you're standing on a cliff. You're right on the edge and you're looking over and all of a sudden the ground gives way and you begin to fall. But sticking out of the side of the cliff is a branch. Do you have to have great faith to reach out and grab that branch? Do you have to know that it's going to save you? No, you just got to grab the branch. Because the object of your faith is the branch. It is the only thing that can save you. Can I tell you that Jesus is the object? Jesus is the, is the branch. And it's not what is in you. You cannot drum up more faith. You need to go to the only one that can give you faith and say, Lord, give me more faith. Do you have faith in Christ? In Christ alone, it's not you. It's Him. And the picture here is that Jesus is more powerful than any storm. These disciples are more afraid because they realize, oh my gosh, we had no power over the storm and we have even less power over him. He is more powerful than the storm. But guys, there is a huge difference between Jesus and the storm. Jesus loves you. Jesus is good. Jesus has the power to keep you, to hold you, to direct you, to protect you, and to sustain you to the very end. Will you trust Him? That is the question. And He will use these difficult things in your life to teach you and to test you. I was speaking with a friend of mine just the other day. And he told me that suffering has been used by God to make Him wiser and stronger and closer to God. And more compassionate to those that are suffering. Do you see that it's at those times that the lessons are learned? The gentleman that I was talking to, that I I went over to his house and he said, doesn't God care? I began to ask him questions about, well, what has this caused you to do? And he said, well, I began to read the Bible because I'm trying to figure out why God is allowing this in my life. And I say, can I open the Bible with you and we'll begin to take a look and see what it says? And we began to look at the scriptures to show how God offers a saving work for our hearts. This man realized he had been depending on himself his whole life. And suddenly the things that were his security were stripped away and he was left with nothing. And at first he thought, maybe God's mad at me. But then he began to realize, well, maybe God is directing me and bringing me to recognition that I can't stand on my own two feet. And I showed him how Jesus died for his sins. And the power to live this life is in Christ, not ourselves. And I shared with him the gospel, and this man received Christ that day. When I walked in, he was so depressed, so bummed out, so confused. When I left, he was full of joy and at peace. And this is the picture we have here with Christ. God will hold you. It is a promise. Because he has the power to sustain you. Jesus puts it like this in John 10. He says, my sheep, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of the, out of my hand. And my father who's given them to me, he's greater than all and no one is going to be able to snatch them out of my father's hand. You are secure in the loving arms of our living savior and our father. Jesus has the power to sustain you.
in the midst of life's struggles, in the storms that you're facing right now? Do you believe it? Do you trust it? I pray that you do. Let's pray. Father, I know that there are perhaps many here today, Father, who have been struggling. Some even with the faith to believe. And so I pray even now, Lord, that you would help them, strengthen them. May they see Jesus as their all in all. And will you help each of us, Lord, to trust you with all our hearts. Because you have the power, Lord, to direct us. You have the power to protect us. You have the power to deliver us and sustain us. And we we put our faith in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.